During the 10 days of mourning Queen Elizabeth's death, we watched video clips of her life, and we witnessed her extended family, walking processions and performing ceremonies. All of it was visible to us, the millions of ordinary people. Then we see developments like the nationalization of monarchy, that suddenly monarchs become national figurehead. Uh, I think what changes in the 19th century is the visibility of the royal family. We must not let in daylight upon magic. <laughs> that is beautiful. Say that we again, mustn't please. let in daylight upon magic. So what he means is that, and he spoke of the family on the throne. Not the monarch on the throne, but the family on the throne. My students always laugh when I show them examples of these photos. They can be actually really funny. They, they look quite <laughs> awkward. You've got this, this monarch, quite stern, stern face in full uniform, just, you know, cradling a wee baby on his knees. And it looks like the baby's really uncomfortable. <laughs> so, but they had to practice this kind of. Uh, this kind of representation or message. The, the prince, though, is very sweet-natured and, and he doesn't really get the whole situation. So, And he's convinced that he can't die because he's the heir to the throne. You know, he will be protected. And it takes a priest in the end to explain to him that he will join the other angels, but that his rank uh, doesn't count in heaven so much. So, Did you know that in Britain, royal self-staging to show the royal family on the throne started with the reign of Queen Victoria. It was the dawn of an era in which a loving, happy family life became absolutely desirable for the middle class, and Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert, went to great lengths to show themselves as just that, a happy, caring couple with playful and messy children, as if they were a normal family. Hey there, news peelers. Today is September 23, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Queen Elizabeth reportedly once said, I have to be seen to be believed. A recent New York Times article interpreted this statement as such. What Her Majesty really meant is that it was her duty to be seen, because it was her source of authority in an age when the British monarch no longer has hard power, which is the power to rule, so she has to use soft power to reign. Queen Elizabeth understood the power of visuals. She was meticulously involved in planning her own funeral, including designing her own hearse, the wide rear windows and the glass roof, all meant for us to see her flag-draped coffin. And there was her personal appearance, her clothes, its vibrant colors, and her purses, 
Almost nothing she did was by chance, including the choice of which brooch from her extensive collection of brooches to wear. I'll share a funny story here. When Donald Trump visited her in 2018 as the president of the United States, she wore the brooch <laughs> that was she wore the brooch that had been given to her by former president Barack Obama. So obviously she had political opinions which she expressed with subtlety and humor. But all of this visibility and our familiarity with the person of the monarch and the monarch's family are new historically speaking and they have been practiced for decades meaning it didn't come natural for monarchs to act this way to present themselves as such. At some point in Europe's history absolute monarchs with awesome powers granted by birth and supposedly through divine right had to face revolutions constitutions and limitations to their powers and had to adapt and to develop soft power to survive to better understand this transformation i spoke with dr heidi merkins a professor at the university of aberdeen in scotland she has many publications on this subject including the following two books royal heirs and the uses of soft power in 19th century europe and also sons and heirs succession and political culture in 19th century europe my interview with dr merkins was recorded just prior to her majesty's funeral to learn more about dr merkins you can visit her academic homepage the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode so stay with me as dr merkins and i peel the history behind this news Dr. Merkins, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. In the last few weeks, we have seen so much pomp and ceremony since the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. How important is all this tradition? First of all, thank you very much for having me on your program today. My pleasure. It's tradition is so important, not just in Britain. Monarchy is an institution um, that is resting on tradition. You know, all the the golden carriages, the the ancient rituals, the ceremony. Um, right now, there's a discussion about which which veil to wear um, for the funeral. Um, all these traditions help to create a sense of continuity. It's a reminder that this institution is so old. It doesn't mean that the monarchy isn't changing. Right. It's a, as a political system, it's, it's adapting, it's modernizing, but often the modernization is quite subtle. And we've got this unifying power of rituals that will always be an integral part of, of monarchy. Continuity, you think, is important, matters? Yes, absolutely. It's an integral part of what monarchy um, is. You know, you mentioned golden carriages, and, you know, we see, uh, sort of heraldic uh, signage and banners and what have you. As I and billions really of people watch this, you don't really, it's strange, you don't really see power in display. It, it's its more like the human side of power. If I were to give it the name, which I've also seen here and there in academic uh, discussions, it's kind of soft power, right? I agree. At the moment, we what we can see, we can see people, right? We can see people 
rallying behind the royal family. People are expressing their support. They're sharing the, the dynasty's grief. Um, what I find particularly fascinating is this, this online book of condolences that has been opened by the royal oh, household. I didn't know so that. You, you can you can click on a link and leave a message um, of condolence to the royal household. By the way, that's that's one of those subtle elements of modernization we see, right? Yeah. Uh, the same as social media accounts for the royal family. Uh, and all these events are really an invitation to engage with the dynasty at a time of change, at times of uh, transition and of grief. And yes, I think it's soft power. Um, it's it's a very interesting concept, a very interesting um, um, term. Um, the concept was introduced by Joseph S. Nye, um, a political scientist in the 1990s. And we historians, we are quite good at you know, cheekily adapting concepts from other disciplines. So we, we took that one as well. Oh, I'm so and proud we, of myself can, for bringing can, it up then. <laughs> <laughs> we can wonderfully use it to just explain a few things that we find interesting about constitutional systems. So, so uh, if I may interrupt you for one moment, mm -hmm. you said the, the, the term was adopted in the 1990s. Uh, but how did this sort of power become important for constitutional monarchies that you just, you know, you, you went there, you started talking about constitutional monarchies. Is this something that is integral to them? Soft power? Soft power is a, a lens. We, it's, it's, it's a framework and we use it to look back into the past and to try and explain a few things that we notice about monarchies in the, in the 19th century. So not just to, to be sure, no, no monarch in the 19th century would stand up in the morning, get out of bed and say, I'm going to spread a little soft power this morning, right? <laughs> so That was in the morning mantra. <laughs> <laughs> so we use it to just look back and try to, to, to explain a few things we, we scratch our heads about. So what is soft power about? It's um, Joseph S. and I used it to, to explain the ability to make others want the same outcomes as you um, using specific specific strategies. So if you manage to shape someone's preference and if you manage to uh, to appeal to someone based on shared values and and to convince and attract and persuade someone, then you're using soft power. The opposite is hard power, uh, where you just force a person to, to do what you want, or you, you bribe a person, pay a person off. So basically, soft power is about you go along with someone because you find the person is right and you're sharing the same convictions, and while this hard power is um, you have to. That's the difference. And that's a significant difference when we talk yeah. about monarchies. When did European monarchies start using this soft power I, I i feel as though they had to use it at some point because when you go back in history monarchies didn't use soft power when did yeah. this develop it's a big question um so the big question is how is a constitutional monarchy different from an for example an absolutist monarchy yeah yeah, yeah. so many ways uh, I only touch upon a few very relevant points here. So 
broadly speaking, before the French Revolution of 1789, most European monarchs, monarchies had a lot of factual political power. Uh, for example, the power to declare war and peace and the right to pass legislation. And we can call this hard power. Okay. Monarchs were also understood to be ruling by the grace of God. That means their legitimacy, why they were doing all of this, this wasn't generally questioned. You know, if you're on the throne because of divine right, you don't have to answer to any worldly power. <laughs> That's a lot of power. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of power. <laughs> so, and this changed with the French Revolution and changed with the Napoleonic Empire. And after this, like really kicking off in 1814, we see a, a constitutional age dawning. You said 1814, 1814, I think, is, okay. is, is really the time when it kicks off. We have a few earlier examples of constitutions, but from 1814, everybody seriously starts to think about constitutions. Mm -hmm. And um, and they come from two different directions, really. So some constitutions um, come... Professor Merkins, if I may interrupt you, by everybody, sure. you're talking about Western Europe, uh, perhaps Northern Europe. We're excluding, let's say, Hungary, Prussia... <laughs> Austria and Russia, right? This is mostly Western. For now. For now. Okay, go ahead, please. Okay. I wanted to understand <laughs> they, what you mean by everybody. Okay, please. Yeah, they, they, so yeah, it's a, so the, basically speaking, the, the long 19th century is a century of constitutional monarchies. And this also will be part of the history of Romania, of Greece, of Russia, and so on. But the the, the early constitutions are in some of the German states at the time and in France in particular in 1814. Mm -hmm. And then we've got Belgium. Um, so Italy in the 18, a bit later. So yeah. we're moving, we're moving west basically to, to east, if you will. And it's, it's very, very broad. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of going through the process of political osmosis to other parts of Europe. Constitutions come into life from through various forces sometimes they come um from below as the exact the, re the result of a, of a revolution for example but sometimes they also granted from above from a monarch who wants to prevent revolution for example oh, the 1814 charter that's quite interesting so it's not just a means of oppression it's not just a means of freedom we can you know put all kinds of labels on constitutions but it's actually quite flexible how they come into life and how they are being used and how they can be understood. That's really interesting. It is. So sort of a preventative measure, um, um, a monarch seeing the writing on the wall and stepping forward to change the system, to accommodate the will of the people. Is is part of this, when we talked about soft power, uh, that traces back to the 19th century, the advent of constitutional system going back to 1814, is it is part of it an effort to for monarchs to endear themselves to the people? Absolutely. They have to. So why do they have to? Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the principle behind the constitution, right, is that it takes away some of the executive powers the monarchy holds and hands them over to elected political um, institutions. So it's it's sharing power suddenly, uh, the power of legislation, for example. So in a very basic sense, constitutional monarchies share power with parliaments. And 
we can see this in different ways. So historians have argued that this is really a period of steady demise for monarchies because they, you know, have to give away all this power. So they become weaker and weaker. And this is the reason why so many of them vanish in 1918 after the First World War. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with this. I, I, I see the development a bit differently. I think it's more complex than that. How do you see um, it? It's, it's a period, in my view, of change and of adaptation. Um, most constitutional dynasties were very much willing to embrace constitutionalism and to use this as an opportunity to learn and to develop. So they understood perfectly that their power now depended on, on the goodwill of their subjects who participated in political decision-making processes. So the idea of divine right became very difficult to sell uh, in the 19th century, um, even though it really wasn't a secular age we're looking at. Um, and this means that constitutional monarchs turned more towards their subjects because the subjects became their new source of legitimacy. Uh, they, mm. they supported the monarchy and the monarchs knew this. But it doesn't mean that this is a, a demise that suddenly you have to talk to your subjects. But I think it's creating new sources of strength for the monarchy as well, because if there's a bond, maybe a relationship that's that's positive between the monarch and their subjects, then we see developments like the nationalization of monarchy, that suddenly monarchs become national figureheads. Um, and that is a, is a thing of the 19th century. We don't see this before. So let me see if I understand the evolution of monarchies into constitutional monarchy since the French Revolution, two things happen. They lose hard political power. So a king just cannot just trot into a square and say, we're going to declare war, we're going to do mm -hmm. this. So they lose that. And they also uh, lose that narrative of sort of divine right, uh, you know, the representative of God here or something to that effect. Since they don't have those two, they find another source of power, and that is the people. Yep. So that's why one of the reasons why they have to endear themselves to the people. And 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 by this time, um, the 19th century, when we talk about the people, well, the nobility used to be their own rivals, people that could become monarchs themselves. So we're not yeah. really talking about nobility. Are we talking about what? The masses, the middle class? Several groups, yes. Mm -hmm. um, um, middle class and the poor, both very important in different ways. So let's maybe look at the middle classes first. Mm -hmm. um, the 19th century has been coined the age of industry, which, I've, which I really like. Not yeah. the age of revolution, but the age of industry. And it really witnessed this, this social and political rise of the industrious middle classes in various societies. Um, so we spoke about soft power, and I, th I think it works best when we can agree on something based on shared values. So here is where the middle classes really help and support the monarchy and vice versa in the 19th century. Monarchs found many values represented by the middle classes very attractive. For example, uh, they agreed on a sense of duty uh, and diligence and hard work as something that was desirable in a, in a monarch as well. This is really interesting. Many monarchs in the 19th century really wanted to be perceived in public as hard working individuals. Um, 
the best example, I think, is, is Prussia's king, later emperor William I, um, who became famous for his work ethics. That's per se is not new. There are so many stories about Prussia's king Frederick the Great in the yeah, 18th yeah. century, yeah, who who spent hours at his desk and was constantly on horseback and so on. But in the 19th century, there's growing overlap between these middle class values and monarchical self representation. It suited both parties. Um, because the middle classes were, of course, voting in elections. They didn't vote for the monarch, but they voted for governments whose representatives then had to work with the monarch. So we, they wanted to make sure they are on the same page. Oh, that's interesting. Well, you know, Frederick the Great at the time of Catherine the Great, um, he, he he died before uh, her reign ended, but there, there was rivalry. But his hard work were really... Uh, sort of for his own ambitions and for the expansion of his own empire. Uh, I, I think perhaps in the 19th century, they had to add a different flavor to hard work, as in hard work for the sake of hard work, to show that they're working hard, similar to the middle class. Is that is it, that a relevant interpretation? It is, yes. And, and very hard work for the sake of the nation at some point as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. When, when the sole idea of national figurehead comes through. And, and we've got the poor, of course. It's a different story, I think. Um, How so? The royals, monarchs really cared about the poor in the 19th century, constitutional monarchs, and they went to great lengths to support them. But it comes from a different place, a different motivation. Um, charity has always been a royal duty. But the 19th oh, King century, Charles even mentioned that last, yeah, last week. Charity. Oh, okay, go ahead, please. Interesting. Charity. It always comes back to, to current events, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> History behind news. That's what we do. Yes. Yeah. Here we go. Um, so the 19th century saw a massive rise in charitable activity from all members of dynasties, of the various dynasties. There's a, um, a book written by Frank Prochaska, who has written about the British welfare monarchy. Um, as he Welfare saw it monarchy. Welfare wow. monarchy, wow. yeah, that begins in the 19th century. So dynasties show responsibility and, and they um, give their good name to gather money and, and collect money and so on. But this is really um, reserved for respectable members of society. So you can be poor, but in order to be um to be given royal favor in the 19th century you have to be respectable um so no no prostitutes no prostitutes no no drunks um so I only see. if you've fallen from you know you've fallen on hard times so then then this is the kind of poor um that deserves you are within the norms and mores of the society. I get it. Yeah. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the family on the throne and the heir to the throne. We'll be right back. When it comes to European history, I've tried to bring you subjects and eras that are not readily discussed in our history classes or in our media. A good example of that is Poland, a country that has welcomed millions of Ukrainian refugees, but also a country that once ruled over much of Ukraine and influenced its religion, politics, and much more. History here gets even more interesting. You see, we peel the history behind news from Poland by looking into the history of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, one of the largest and most populous European nations 
that no longer exists. Nevertheless, its profound impact continues to be felt in Ukraine today. That's one reason why Ukraine looks to the West instead of to Russia. Professor Frost of the University of Aberdeen in Scotland tells us this fascinating history that's full of surprises. Another example is the history of how Finland was conquered by Russia, became an autonomous region of the Russian Empire, a status that was different from all the other Russian lands, and how Finland fought off the Soviets, which later laid a foundation for Finland to join NATO. Dr. Lavry of Helsinki University tells us why many years ago Finland's leaders made this vow, never again alone. Finally, Dr. Nemish of Colgate University talked to me about the history of Hungary. How much do any of us really know about that nation? This is especially important when Hungary's Prime Minister, Mr. Orban, who is a favorite of former President Trump and CPAC here in America, makes statements like, we're not a mixed people. Of course, after such statement, we had to examine Hungary's history, from the age of forgotten barbarians to the cataclysmic invasion of the Mongols, then to the Ottomans, Austrians, Hitler's Germany, and the Soviets, to see whether or not Hungary is a country of mixed people. The links to these great conversations are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Merkins. Dr. Merkins, in the last two weeks, we've not only heard and seen King Charles III, but we've seen his wife, the queen consort, his siblings and their families, and also his two sons and their families. So although King Charles is the monarch now, <laughs> the whole family is on display. They all seem to be somewhat somehow relevant to this process. Uh, was it always like this? So there are very different aspects to this question. Um, uh-huh. The, the British History is always complicated. Always. <laughs> <laughs> Monarchs and princes needed to marry and, and queens and consorts needed to produce offspring to guarantee the survival of the dynasty. So in that sense, the family is always there, always very, very important. It's very bad luck if biology isn't working out for you and, um, and you, you know, you can't monarch, secure yeah. in succession. Mm-hmm. So in, in many ways, in many dynasties, especially the male children were relevant, uh, because only they could succeed to the throne. In, in Britain, it was possible to have a female ruler, uh, but for many centuries, male children were given priority over, um, female children until the law was changed in 2013, the succession to the Crown Act. Um, so Tell in that sense. About, I'm sorry, what changed in 2013? Yeah. Repeat that, please. In 2013, we have the succession to the Crown Act, which means that children are equally um, close to succession. And it doesn't matter if they are girls gender. or boys. Yeah, gender doesn't matter. That only happened in 2013? You would have thought that would have happened decades ago. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, <laughs> subtle modernization. Here we exactly. Go <laughs> Continuity, but modernization. Okay. And it's very subtle. Mm-hmm. All right. So. Okay. So what changes? So mm-hmm. coming back to the whole, the whole family thing, uh, I think what changes in the 19th century is the visibility of the royal family and, and the contexts in which they were seen. 
it's it was really an interesting thing to notice for the uh, for the observers at the time, the political observers at the time. There's a journalist in the 1860s. Um, his name is Walter Bedgett, mm-hmm. and he wrote about the role of the of the English monarchy as a as a political and social institution, and also as a moral institution. It's really quite interesting. And he spoke of the family on the throne, not the monarch on the throne, but the family on the throne. Isn't that and a curious term? What does that mean? It's a curious term. And he says that not just the monarch is relevant within the political system, but that each member of the royal family um, the spouses and the crown prince, but also the younger princes and princesses, they all have a specific role to play and function to support the monarchy. They all contribute to the bigger system. Um, and this is why in the 19th century or from the 19th century, we see so many um, photographs and postcards showing the whole often extended royal family and not just the monarch individually on horseback. So um, especially photographs of royal children, not just the heir to the throne, became very popular in the 19th century. My students always laugh when I show them examples of these photos. They can be actually really funny. They they look quite <laughs> awkward. You've got this, this monarch, quite stern, stern face in full uniform, just, you know, cradling a wee baby on his knees. And it looks like the baby's really uncomfortable. (laughs) So, but this kind of, they had to practice this kind of, uh, this kind of representation or message, I think. Um, First, my first comment is show your (laughs) students some of the pictures of our parents back in the seventies. They'll they'll laugh at those too. Uh, But my second uh, question, the serious one is that why do they feel the need to display the family, mm-hmm. to show family support in the 19th century. Did that have to do with the constitutional system, the sort of evolution of that? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Co- yeah. <laughs> so we can, we, why do they feel, feel the need? Um, we can pin this down for Britain okay. pretty precisely, I think. When does this start? Oh, great. It starts, yeah. It starts with Queen Victoria. Um she came to the throne in 1837. Um, she married Prince Albert of Saxe Coburg and Gotha in 1840. And um, she gave birth to her daughter Victoria in the same year. And then the next year to uh, Albert Edward, her son and heir. And remember, we talked about middle class values. Yes, and yes. This is exactly the time when a loving, happy, family life became an absolutely desirable virtue, not just in Britain. Um, Gentlemen wanted to be seen as loving and caring husbands and fathers. Children laughing and playing were seen as an inspiration and mothers doted on their offspring and adored their husbands. So this is, this is really um, a, a widespread phenomenon at the time. And Queen Victoria, and Prince Albert, they went to great lengths to be seen in public as this exact happy, supportive family. Even official portraits. We've got beautiful portraits uh, by court painter Franz Xaver Winterhalter. They show them, you know, Queen and Prince and, and her husband, the Prince Albert. Um, Surrounded by their kids, they're playing on the floor. The, the carpet looks messy. So it's, it's all like a, you know, we are a normal family 
um, message it's and really starts with Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, for my limited knowledge of uh, history, I just want to share this with you. Uh, when you read books about royal families uh, back in the 1700s or 1600s, uh, it, it wasn't so. I mean, first of all, there's no photos, obviously, but um, many of them didn't spend that much time with their heirs. Some of their heirs were actually um, in different uh, yeah. locations entirely. So this is a big change. Yeah, we can, of course, ask, is this all show? <laughs> were they being serious? Um I, it's a good question to ask, but I mean, we know that Queen Victoria was very, very much in love with her husband. So, um, yeah, and and she was a very passionate woman. It, so it was believable uh, to her contemporaries that she adored him and she really wanted to be seen as his loving wife um, to, to make up for the, the fact that she was the person with power in the family, of course, which <laughs> of course, you know yeah. creates this this awkward balance that she as a ruling monarch has a lot more power than he has as a prince. So to, to balance this out, she, she really liked to be seen as this little wife. Um, Interesting. And, and, doting and really, over him in public. Yeah, doting over him. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe we can also think about why was this so important to Queen Victoria? Why did she do this in the first place? Because I think that's quite important um, as well. We we have to look back a little bit into the into British uh, royal history because Victoria's father and uncles, so um, her predecessors as kings, King William the Fourth and George the Fourth, they had not been family men at all. Um, you know, we've got male George the Fourth or George the Third. Was it George the Third? George George the Third was very much a family man. Yes. Oh, I but, see. But but he he didn't really. Um, he, you know, link this to this middle class value of of happy family life. This really starts later. Okay. George the Third was a family man. Yes, that's true. Yes. But um, George the Fourth and William the Fourth, no, <laughs> not really. Um, and and when when Queen Victoria came to the throne, she found it necessary to make the British monarchy respectable again, and relatable, and a pillar of. Uh, morality for a society to follow. So that was a strict program uh, imposed on all the family uh, and everybody had to take part. This is fascinating because she, when we talk about the Victorian era, it's not just a period in history. It's really um, a moral uh, foundation that she set through her example or she what she wanted to promulgate about her, her, you know, what, what she stood for. She really created a whole mo- yeah. moral setting for uh, Britain and perhaps much of the world that was related to Britain, and which is still in place today. Yeah, and yeah. We, we look at the internet. Uh, you've got so many pictures: royal families playing with their kids, picking them up from school, wiping ice cream off their faces, and and we all think, "Oh my God, are they cute?" And "Oh my God, their children are misbehaving too, not just mine." <laughs> just like so ours. it's creating. It's creating the sense of uh, familiarity and approachability. So it's it's absolutely still part of the register, part of the the, the strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the in the minute we have left of this segment, I just wanted to speak with you about uh, the heir to the throne. Um, Prince Charles seamlessly became King Charles the Third. It's a position he's been preparing for for some, you know. Um, all his life, uh, sixty plus years, you know, since yeah. he's become became aware of 
his his own position in the country. Um, are there any key concepts in hereditary succession in a constitutional monarchy that's worth mentioning here? Absolutely. Um, did you notice how quiet it was after Queen Elizabeth's passing? Um, in the sense that there was no talk of crisis, no no sense of doubt as to what would happen. Now it was it was all clear because the constitutional hereditary system um, is clear in that sense. Yeah, um, yeah. He immediately becomes king upon his mother's death. So there's no no elections necessary, and no. They don't have election deniers like here in America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it it would remain so eerily quiet over the political situation. Yeah. Everybody knew there wouldn't be sudden changes in political direction and so on. So that's one aspect. I think um, this the sense of continuity and stability we've already touched upon. Um, I think what may have what's important to take away from the system is there is no job description as to how an heir to the throne should be and what kind of monarch he will become. There is freedom to interpret the role. Um, so which is why Charles will be a different king and he will be compared with his mother all of the course. time. Um, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> As in, <laughs> he's a different person, he interprets the role in a certain way, and there's no rule book, there's nothing set in stone along the lines of this is this is what an heir to the throne has to do, and this is then how he has to proceed as a monarch. It's just that uh, Queen Elizabeth has been was on the throne for so many decades that there's a sense of it has to be done a certain way, but Charles will reinterpret the role, and that's Constitutionally speaking, if we look at the history of constitutions, that's perfectly fine. Other princes did the same in the 19th century. He will he will put the stamp of his own personality on the monarchy without perhaps deviating too much yeah. from what people are used to for the last 71 yeah. years or so. And uh, um, without obviously uh, spilling over the boundaries of, of uh, constitution. We'll be back after a short break to talk about a famous kiss that says so much about the evolution of constitutional monarchy. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Merkins, the day after the Queen's death, King Charles III arrived at Buckingham Palace and shook hands with the crowd outside. Shockingly, well, it was shocking to me, a woman kissed him on his face and he gave permission to it. Um, but obviously the king is approachable, perhaps too much so. Uh, I say too much because there's got to be a balance. Uh, so is creating this balance that something that has historical roots? Is it something that 
you know, kings and queens have carefully curated? Yes, uh, this is this is a something that has become very important um, for monarchs since the 19th century, since, you know, this this new relationship with their subjects really kicked off. Um, I think it's it may be interesting to come back to Walter Badgett again, um, okay. the, the journalist from the 1860s. That we mentioned in the previous segment, yes. That, yes, we mentioned him before. Um, he wasn't an expert in constitutional systems, but he was a keen observer. And historians today use Badgett a little bit to interpret not just the British monarchy, but they pick up a few things that they think apply to, to other constitutional systems as well. So one quote that I particularly like is where Badgett says about his monarchy, we must not let in daylight upon magic. <laughs> that is beautiful. Say that we again, mustn't please. let in daylight upon magic. So what he means is that um, maintaining a certain distance is as important for the protection and the support of monarchy as approachability and you need both uh in in, in equal measure wow, so that's, that's amazing isn't it 1860s it, it really is. yeah that's, yeah that's it's so true yeah um so was he reflecting what the society expected and what the monarchy was was already doing or is this something that he sort of thought of as whole cloth and the presentation of it became something that was adopted by society and the monarchy. So Badgett appreciated that monarchs in modern times, so to him that was the 1860s, um, monarchs in modern times have to be seen shaking hands and riding in an open carriage so that people could, could see them, see their faces and approach them. Um, but at the same time, he made us aware of the fact that monarchy as an institution can't really be scrutinized. Um, there is he's he he sees the soul ritual and the that's ceremony, the magic the, side, the pomp. That's the magic. Yeah, and and he felt we need this because without it, it won't work. It's like you you can't have a magician on stage, and you want to be you want to have the splendor, and you want to be fascinated. But at the same time, you can't ask all the time, how does the trick work? And you can't, you know, try and make your way behind this, the stage and to see what, what's going on. So you have to accept there is magic happening, and then it will do wonders um, and will be good for you, basically, and you can enjoy it. That's the idea. Uh, <laughs> so 19th century monarchs were quite inventive when it came to try this to be approachable and a little bit distance or aloof at the same time because they they had to sometimes it went horribly wrong by the way <laughs> these Do you are have the interesting examples? stories yes absolutely so we we um we have the king of the french uh, louis philippe the first um who ruled between 1830 and 1848 so this and is well his... after the napoleonic wars Yes, it's well after the Napoleon Wars. He was a constitutional monarch and he was his nickname was the Citizen King because he was often seen in the park shaking hands um, of various people and he always Seriously, brought his in umbrella. the 1830s? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, he also made sure his subjects knew certain things about his life. Uh, for example, that he had been poor and destitute at a certain 
point in the 1790s when he was fleeing from the revolution and he had to hide in a castle in Switzerland. Um, so this kind of adventurous travel story he shared with his, with his subjects. And still he was dethroned in 1848. Um, oh so he wasn't, yeah, he wasn't super successful in, in creating this perfect balance between approachability and distance. So it's a bit difficult to, to say, but there are historians who argue that he tried too hard to be to he be tried the, too the, hard. The, he tried too hard to be the approachable king, and people didn't take him seriously. People couldn't believe this. Um, this kind of um he, they felt it's theater rather than authentic. And this isn't helping. We have another example, maybe, uh, where I think it's 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 a bit closer uh, to the British monarchy. We've got um the, the future Edward VII, Queen Victoria's son and heir, he was, uh, he, he had quite a scandalous life. Uh, we know this. <laughs> Absolutely. He was a philanderer. He had many, many mistresses. And in many ways, basically, he overdid the whole approachability thing. He was but too approachable. When he, to throne, <laughs> <laughs> when he came to the throne in 1901, he he had such undeniable social skills that made him a very popular and highly skilled diplomat. And and he died in 1910. He he was a very popular monarch. His mother would have been surprised. Queen Victoria never thought very highly of her eldest son, but he managed to to find this balance between being approachable and and then still being a, a capable monarch who, who knows what they were doing. So that's a success story as far as approachability mm -hmm. goes. Uh, you yeah. mentioned uh, that uh, the, the the French king, Louis-Philippe I, uh, from the 1830s, uh, made much about his uh, poor and destitute years when he fled the French uh, Revolution and he hid in a castle. Because that's what I do. If I want to hide, I go to my castle. But it was a castle in a different country. Uh, I appreciate that. It wasn't his castle. It wasn't his <laughs> castle. I get it. I don't have any friends with castles. So um, <laughs> um, there, there, there's a narrative that you shared with me uh, in, in our prior uh, conversations uh, before today about tourism and royalty. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Like people going and seeing where their kings and queens lived at one point. And, and, and it's not just palaces and castles, right? That's true. Um, so monarchy and tourism is, is a really fascinating connection. And we can talk about uh, Queen Elizabeth in a moment as well. But let, let's start a bit earlier. Um, mm -hmm. There are places that are linked to royal dynasties or to individual monarchs and people like to visit those places and this kind of tourism already starts in the 18th century um one a great example is the czar peter house in zandam near amsterdam the the czar traveled is this um, peter the great the russian peter czar? the great he traveled yeah. he traveled europe in 1697 i think uh -huh. and he he studied how to build ships in amsterdam and he stayed in a in a very modest modest hut um and and stayed there incognito and apparently nobody knew who he was and so on and when oh, he wow. left this this hut this very uh, modest humble dwelling became a tourist attraction it's still there it's absolutely amazing. They preserved the hut. 
and and encased it there's a shell around it and you can see you know greetings from visitors from various decades and and centuries so it's absolutely fascinating if you happen to be in amsterdam go it's well it's i'll gorgeous. have to go see it so you're saying though <laughs> going back to the 18th century in the 1700s people started seeing this it's not a palace it's a hut it's a hut what, what, that's like going in, uh, you know, a place of pilgrimage for a prophet, for a religious figure, and yeah. that he or she stood here, or right? It's similar to that almost. I think it is, yes. Um, I think it could be used in a flexible way. So there will always be tourists um, who go to Corsica to, to look at Bonaparte's birthplace, with an interest in it's a tourist attraction, you know, I want to see this. But there are also other people in the 19th century who are maybe Bonapartists who support the political party uh, and you, you want to reinstate maybe Bonaparte to the throne who will see this as a place of pilgrimage. Um, and these two, they, they exist parallel next to, next to one another, which is quite interesting. So do, these, do the followers... And supporters of these monarchs um, or their sort of royal line, do they fund these tourist places? Where they do they publicize it? There are different. Yes, there are different ways to fund it. They fund um, they fund journeys, so they they fund group journeys, for example, to these uh, places. Um, I know that, and they make sure that these places are known. So the 19th century is also the time when travel guides are invented, the, the books, you know, the Baedeker. Oh, interesting. And, and all that. If you look at, if you look at early versions of, of Baedeker and, and, and other of these famous travel guides in various countries, they start in the 1830s, roughly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, you can find, go there, go, go to Graubünden in Switzerland. This is where Louis-Philippe uh, used to live when he was destitute and so on. And you can visit the room where he stayed as a teacher and so on. So it's it, it becomes a, a proper um, tourist attraction. So this is how, did, how it, it gets money as well. Mm -hmm. did, it, did it matter that these, these examples that you shared with me, um, you know, the hut in um, in uh, Amsterdam, near Amsterdam, or uh, Napoleon's birthplace, which I assume was uh, not a palace. I know it was not, in fact, uh, in Corsica. D does it matter that they're humble abodes? Yeah, uh, a lot. It's in, in what sense? I I really want to do some more research into this because I'm fascinated with the fact that we are interested, or people are interested in the monarchy but in the very human side of monarchy. Yeah, I want to go the, see the place in Amsterdam now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so this is this is, you know, such a tiny place. Um and so maybe maybe monarchy becomes more relatable when we when we visit a place where that's, you know, that's not a palace um and that's not uh, you know gilded and, kind of and the very rich. Life. The simple life. Um we have and we don't have a really a similar example for the British royal family, but the simple life aspect I see in Balmoral as well for the royal family. Um, Balmoral in Aberdeenshire. I mean, everybody knows the place now because yeah, this, is, this is where Queen Elizabeth died. But 
the connections between the British royal family and Balmoral reached far back into the 1840s. Um, okay. Queen yeah, Queen Victoria, she loved Scotland and she um, especially loved the Cairngorm Mountains. And I live nearby, so I know what she's talking about. It's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> it's a wonderful part of the world. So Prince Albert bought Balmoral Castle in the 1850s and they refurbished and, you know, built this castle. So it was still a castle. But how is that a simple life? Yeah, because the, it, the, the Highland life uh -huh. um, of, of Queen Victoria and her family, that was a lot of picnics and riding on ponies and hiking and drawing, sitting in a heather uh, spot. As, so, as opposed so to really, pageantry and golden yeah. carriages. Exactly. So they, they really celebrated this. No glamour, no protocol, um, you know, just going on a hunt. Um, so that kind of simple life. They enjoyed uh, for several months each year and Queen Victoria loved it. And still Queen Elizabeth and her family, they also had this very close connection with Scotland. And because of that, Royal Deeside is so popular as a tourist spot as well. Many people come to visit Balmoral or Braemar. Uh, which has become famous for for the Highland Games. Uh, uh -huh. It's just a tiny village or a, a tiny town next door. Um, and thousands of tourists come every year because they know that the royal family likes to attend the Braemar Highland Games. Um, yeah. Dr. Merkins, is some of this, I'm not questioning the authenticity, I'm just wondering, the queen, Queen Elizabeth II, is, was very aware of her public persona. Yeah. So was some of this royal self-staging, if you will? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, not that, that, so what, not that there's does, anything wrong with that, but exactly. they, were, they were aware of this. Absolutely. That was that would be my point. The the question is what do we what do we how do we define royal self-staging? I I think royal self-staging is is what every monarch does because we all have, as people, we all have maybe a private persona that we share with certain people and we have like a public persona or a job persona that we share when we are at work. Maybe we can think of royal self-staging as their form of job persona, Yeah. right? So you- That's a good way of putting it, yeah. You, you emphasize certain aspects that you, you want to get across. So when I think of Queen Elizabeth, I think of duty, uh, but also of grace and good humor and of composure. Uh, so these were like elements of her of her royal persona that that I think will I will remember. Um, and other monarchs also in the 19th century like to be perceived maybe as intellectuals. They like as adventurers or as modernizers and, and like to stress these aspects of their royal persona. That doesn't mean that they're in real life completely different people. I don't think so. They're not, it's not lying in the sense that they pretend to be somebody else, but rather that they stress certain aspects and turn these into their yeah, a stage personality, if you yeah, will. Yeah, what 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 they wish to project into the public, yeah. what aspects of themselves they wish to project into the public. Yeah. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Merkins as we get into the perspective. 
The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Merkins, although she was 96 years old, it sort of feels surreal that Her Majesty's dead. Uh, one almost feels as though she, she could have been able to avoid it or delay it. I know that sounds silly to say it, but she was the queen. Uh, I, I say this because it reminds me of this line in the story that you shared with me. Quote, but then the prince exclaims, being Dauphin really means nothing. What's this story? And by the way, it's a bit of a sad story. It's, it's a brilliant story, but before I go there, let me just agree. I, I've heard this from so many people I had conversations with over the last week. Um, we can't believe the queen is gone. Um, surely she's not gone. She's the queen. <laughs> yeah, she has exactly. to stay. Um, so this this kind of conversation I had so many times last week, it, it really feels like she she should be just there Here. forever. Yeah. Um, I know. So, but no, that's not the case. And actually, there's a similar conversation uh, like this in the 19th century. So the story is uh, from 1866, and it's written by a, a French novelist uh, called Alphonse Daudet. And it's called The Dauphin's Death. It's a very sad story. I, I lecture about this story, and it always makes my student cry. Oh. So it's a very famous, <laughs> it's oh a very boy. famous children's book. Uh, I know. Oh boy! So nineteenth-century stuff. It's really sad. Uh, so the base, the the basic story is: there's a young heir to the throne. We don't know his name. We don't know the dynasty. Um, he's only a boy. He's very sick, and everybody knows he's going to die. And everybody is waiting with bated breath for the worst to happen. And the parents are inconsolable. The, the prince, though, is very sweet-natured and, and he doesn't really get the whole situation. So, And he's convinced that he can't die because he's the heir to the throne um, oh. and, and that, oh. you know, he will be protected. And it takes a priest in the end to explain to him that he will join the other angels, but that his rank uh, doesn't count in heaven so much. So, And this is when the prince <laughs> exclaims, but then... What's the point in being heir to the throne um, if if it doesn't make a difference in heaven? So that's basically the the, the morality of the story. It's a very why <laughs> why is this of the story? First of all, two questions: Why does this story touch the reader so much? Here I am, a fifty-two-year-old man. I read this, and it was it impacted me, and. Second question that's related to that, why is the story so popular? Maybe two aspects. A, uh -huh. it's a, I think the, the religious side of the story appealed to readership in the 1860s. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the idea of, you know, we're all equal before God. Uh, it's yeah. a very, you know, it's a different society. Um, I think this appealed to the readership, but I think what really appealed to the readership was the humanization of monarchy uh, in this story. Mm -hmm. Alphonse Daudet was really good at this. Um, like he, 
he showed a human side, you know, he showed a sobbing queen who's who's really inconsolable and very sad and a, a father who doesn't, a, a king father who doesn't want to be seen crying. So he locks himself up in a room oh. so nobody sees that he's shedding tears. So this kind of, of emotional um, um, framework for understanding monarchy, I think this is what makes what's the real attraction um, of this story. And it doesn't spoil the magic. no. It doesn't spoil the magic at all. I know. Um, Here we can approach the 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 dynasty, but still we're not in danger of spoiling spoiling the magic. You know, uh, in addition to the outpouring of grief and widespread mourning, uh, we're also hearing that some around the world are criticizing the queen and the institution of the British monarchy. Uh, you see this a lot in social media for the alleged atrocities committed uh, or, or condoned uh, by the British government during her reign. We've talked about a constitutional monarch's soft power in the previous segments. Um, is that all she has, soft power? What I want to know is, did Queen Elizabeth II have any power to control, regulate, or regulate uh, what the British government does? And I'm not getting to the politics of what the British government did. This is a broader mm -hmm. question about the monarchy. In a constitutional system, the position of the monarch is a different one. Um, in a constitutional monarchy, the monarch is head of state. What does that mean? So all the ability to, to make, pass legislation, it resides with the elected parliament, not with the monarch anymore. Um, the, the sovereign is not uh, invite with the, the sovereign doesn't have any political or executive role. Um, they undertake constitutional and and representational roles. For example, this is why the queen opened uh, parliament, um, um, or why a monarch can give royal assent uh, to legislation in in some contexts. Um, so, constitutionally speaking the accountability for political decisions is always with the government, not with the monarch. This is why already in the 19th century, we have the saying, the monarch reigns, but does not rule. There's the, there's yeah. the constitutional difference, basically, yeah. Uh, um, and then, and of course, we've got this highly symbolic role of the, of the monarch as head of the nation, um, as in uh, a focus for a national identity, maybe unity. Um, this is this is a, a role that was carved out for monarchs in the 19th century as well. And in many uh, monarchies, it still exists today. So constitutional monarchs, Queen Elizabeth II or King Charles III, don't have the power to come and tell uh, uh, the prime minister or any ministers within our cabinet you know what they should do or it's not their constitutional role no. yeah um and, and and i think this is something that's probably missed by a lot of people that are uh, criticizing the queen for this specific um aspect i mean they're welcome to share their opinions but i think this doesn't really fit within the reality of a constitutional monarch especially one that is so well ingrained in Britain and their systems and checks and balances. I mean, this is not a new system that they have. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point 
<laughs> after everything we've talked about, about constitutional monarchy, uh, what would it be? Maybe this one. Um, there's, I think my takeaway point is this one. Um, there's not one way a constitutional monarchy works, but many, many, many. It always depends on the people, on the dynasty, on the politicians, on the various audiences, and it depends on the circumstances, how the system is interpreted. We really need to look at, at contexts. And to me, that makes the history of constitutional monarchy such a fascinating field of study because it's not one framework that fits all. It's not one size that fits all because we, we really have to deal with the individual cases. So it's, when we cross the channel, the English channel, other constitutional uh, monarchies in Europe are maybe vastly different. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They share certain com common denominators, like there is a constitution, uh, but the way how it's interpreted, put into practice, can be can be vastly different. Dr. Merkins, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>